Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing The Snake, the Crocodile, and the Dog by Elizabeth Peters. And this is the seventh book in the Amelia Peabody series, both in publication and chronological order, and was published in 1992. So as you may remember, this is Lane's absolute favorite series. So this but is part of the reason we're reading it. But I also think, while it's my favorite series, this is your favorite book in the series. It is. I have to say, this is the one that I think is the most fun of the whole series. And I'm all about fun. Yes. This one is definitely laugh out loud funny in several places. It's so funny. It's so ridiculous. Uh, It's really enjoyable. There's no, I mean, (laughs) there's an attempt at angst, but it's just funny angst. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's it's so ridiculous. So um, I'm going to read the book jacket. Usually Meg and I trade off, but I couldn't find one I liked online. So I'm going to read from the copy I actually have so Meg and I can't alternate. Amelia Peabody was unabashedly proud of her newest translation, a fragment of the ancient fairy tale, The Doomed Prince. Later, she would wonder why no sense of foreboding struck her as she retold the story of the king's favorite son, who had been warned that he would die from the snake, the crocodile, or the dog. Little did she realize, as she and her beloved husband sailed blissfully toward the pyramids of ancient Egypt, that those very beasts, and a cat as well, would be part of a deadly plot. The expedition began so happily, leaving their delightful but catastrophically precocious son Ramses back in England, Amelia hoped this romantic trip might rejuvenate her 13-year-old marriage and bring back the thrills she had feared were fading. She and her dear Emerson were returning to the remote desert site where they had first fallen in love. Armarna, the holy city of Akhenaten and his beautiful queen Nefertiti, but their return would threaten not only their marriage, but their very lives with perils as chilling as a mummy's curse. An old enemy was determined to learn Amelia and Emerson's most closely guarded secret the location of a legendary long-lost oasis and a race of people bedecked in gold. So cunning was his scheme that Amelia might overlook, until it was too late, the truth about the mysterious cat called Anubis, the identity of the spy among their retinue, and the nature of the stunning blow that could rob her of all she held dear. A quintessential Elizabeth Peters adventure, the snake, the crocodile, and the dog will sweep readers toward an ingenious climax designed to shock and utterly surprise us all. I mean, it does utterly surprise us all. I will give her that. (laughs) I mean, decent jacket. I like that they got both the stuff going in Egypt and the mention that they left the family back home because that ends up being one of the funniest parts of the book. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So as usual, we, we try to point out this, the, the romance tropes. So this book is not a romance. No, it's a historical fiction mystery. It's a historical fiction mystery about an already married couple. Yep. But we are classifying it as romance adjacent because of the many, many romance tropes that appear. This one is almost a cut and dry romance novel, not going to lie. Like, Maybe that's why it's my favorite. <laughs> like, yes, it's stuck in with the historical fiction mystery that the rest of the series really adheres to. And it is very well sourced, very well documented, a true historical fiction. And there is a mystery, but this is a romance novel mystery. It's not even a mystery novel mystery. Yeah. So one of the, the, so the big trope for this book is amnesia. This is the amnesia romance. 
So Emerson and Amelia, as it says, have been mentioned for 15 years. Um, re relatively early in the book, they get attacked and Emerson is abducted. And when they rescue him, they realize he had the amnesia. And the amnesia <laughs> dates specifically to right before he met Amelia. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> it's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's it's really funny because <laughs> she's also like, wait a minute, is this like a psychological issue? He wanted to forget everything about me. <laughs> she takes it hard. She takes it very hard. <laughs> I, I kind of love it. I mean, I love it. The book starts in medias res, but it's hilariously introduced. So she starts off writing about how she took her books to an editor and the editor was like, you should start with some action. She was like, that's terrible advice. And then she puts the next section as when she finds Emerson like, and then goes back. And then goes back, yes. But so it's, it's just very, like, I think it, it, it sets the tongue in cheek mood of the whole book. Yes. That Amelia is sort of gonna be blissfully willing to do whatever she thinks is best even as she's saying something else. Well, and what I also like about it is that it sets it sets up the structure for the entire book, mm -hmm. right? Which is that you're she's going to introduce this thing, and then they are going to go back and see what happened. It's a, it it reminds me a little bit, and obviously this was published in 1992, but it reminds me a little bit of Sherry Thomas, mm -hmm. um, of the Hollow of Fear. Yes. Right where you yeah. get the whole thing and then it goes back and you, everything, there's like a click, you know, like, an, uh, is that what you say in English and French? You say, on déclic, there's a, there's like a, something snaps into focus and all of a sudden everything else you see differently. Okay. You see what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I so like it. I think this is an interesting take too on the marriages in crisis novel. Yeah. So in the first book of the series, which we've already reviewed, Crocodile on the Sandbank, Emerson's brother Walter ends up with Amelia's best friend, Evelyn. And obviously Emerson and Amelia end up together. And Amelia and Evelyn are talking at the beginning of this book basically about how kind of they've settled into life as old married couples and how unsatisfactory that can be at times. Yeah. But while both women are like unsatisfied with certain elements of their relationship and want them to change and are like looking for a fix in a way, like these people aren't in danger of divorcing. They haven't done anything horrible to each other. So yeah. I think in terms of a take on it, and then obviously Emerson not remembering, remembering Amelia is a crisis. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to read a romance novel with a kind of mar marriage and crisis, A plot and B plot. Yeah. Where you don't have to resort to making any of them terrible people or yeah. having committed a terrible act. Yeah. I I will say that the so the B plot marriage <laughs> it, that that's not resolved in this book. It sort of is. Sort of is. When um, she gets the parasol and Right. It sort yeah. of is, but I feel like it it also will extend into other books later. Sure. So which is which is which is good. I'm yeah, but I, it's think, I also think it's interesting as like a manual. So you and your husband are still like hot for each other, but not in the way you once were. And you definitely feel more like parents than sexy spouses. What can fix that? Amnesia. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's unfortunately not a very practical manual. 
so good. Oh, we have the a love triangle in this book. We do. Uh, I I love it. And and who's it with? It's like a love square, sort of, kind of, but not really. I love well, it. And also, one of the people has several identities. Right. Exactly. Which complicates things. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's which brings us to the next trope, which is secret identity. So many times over. So there are. Amelia and Emerson arrive in Egypt, right, for the season where they've left both Ramses and their young ward Nefret behind. Just to give a little bit of sub, like subplot without spoilers, the sixth book is about Emerson and Amelia and Ramses being invited to a secret oasis, basically, to try to find a friend of Emerson's who had run off to the desert like 13 years before. Instead, they find the daughter of these now deceased friends, bring her back to civilization, but they have to cover up that she came from this remote civilization because letting anybody know it's there will destroy it. And they promised the friends they made along the way that they wouldn't do that. So Nefert makes the decision to stay behind in England to try to learn to be British because she is um, the reincarnation of Isis who doesn't know how to be a real person. And Ramses is like, I'm in love with her. He's 10. So I'm going to stay with her. And so Emerson and Amelia set off on what Amelia is like, yes, this is going to be so romantic. And immediately people start trying to abduct them both. Yeah. And they like are trying to figure out what everybody's motivation is. And they kind of begin to suspect that it has to do with people trying to figure out Nefert's real story because they just said she'd been like raised by missionaries and there was really nothing weird about it. But Emerson's like, that doesn't explain everything that's happening, because clearly some people aren't just trying to abduct us for information. And then the twist at the end basically is nobody is who they said they were. And it's hilarious. It's it's very funny. It's very, very funny. But yeah, I can think of at least three people, four, five, six people in the text. Who are like to- some a totally different character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which which is why that's part of the reasons, part of what I was talking about. How there's at towards the end of the book, there's a there's a shift in focus, and all of a sudden, all these things become clear, and you go, oh my god, like really. But it's not it's not serious. Right. It's just hilarious. It's really it's funny. So, so the the next trip, we also have some hurt comfort. So clearly Emerson has a bash to the head, which is why he has amnesia. But Amelia also ends up sliced and diced a couple of times and Emerson has to take care of her. Mm-hmm. Basically, when they're in that weird stage where he's not aware she's his wife and she's like trying not to seduce him based on the doctor's orders. Uh-huh. You need some excuse to get them in close proximity and it's danger slash maiming to one or both of their persons. Yes. Yes. Uh, and well, and part what part of what I love about this book too is that upon Doctor's orders, she is not pushing him to remember her, <laughs> and just the tension that she feels between what she wants to do and what she's actually doing. Mm-hmm. Follow, uh, it, uh, it's just some of the funniest scenes I've read. Yes, the other that. thing that is probably my favorite in the whole book is Ramses. So. Emerson and Amelia are in Egypt and people are trying to abduct them to get this information. 
But who are the only other two people with the information? Ramses and Nefret, their children back in England. And so the way they find out about the attempts to abduct the children and what's been going on is from letters from their son, Ramses. And these letters are so funny. They are really funny. And Ramses has a way of burying the lead that's really great. <laughs> and that you can, that just like makes, drives Amelia crazy. Yeah. So you've got her like repressing all these feelings about what's happening with Emerson, repressing all these feelings about her inability to take care of her children and the fact that she's finding out about them through this insane, like a lion is involved. Everything's nuts. Everything, it's nuts. It's completely nuts. And then part of it too is just Ramsey's in general is like, so Ramsey's is the most precocious child ever written. Ever. And it, if if you're reading this, then normally you would, if you're listening to us, you would know that normally we would hate a precocious child. But I think what makes it palatable is that Amelia also can't really stand it. <laughs> she cannot. She's just like, at the beginning of this book is when she says, you know, when I first found out I couldn't have more kids, I was kind of bummed. And then when I got to know Ramses, I was really relieved. <laughs> right. And so I think the fact that his own mother can't stand it makes you as a reader enjoy it rather than find it offensive <laughs> yeah and like he's 10 in this book it's not like he's two and like right. he's you know an english boy who's very well educated so it's not totally unbelievable that he would write these insane letters yeah but even so um you know they're not letters oh, yeah. that a normal 10 year old child, regardless of his level of education. Would no, but I think they're not like jarringly unbelievable either. Yeah. They don't sure. take you out of the text because you're like, wait, how old is he supposed to be? Except sure. in the way that you're supposed to think that. Exactly. Exactly. So that's good. Um, some wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful trope, which is love at first sight. But in this case, it's again. <laughs> yeah, it's not because it's not first sight, technically. <laughs> it's just the first time he thinks he's seeing her. This, right. as the jacket said, is a fairy tale retelling, but it's not a fairy tale you know. So what's interesting is the text has to explain the fairy tale mm -hmm. while also explaining the plot. And this is a device used a couple of times in some of the earlier Amelia books because Amelia makes a habit of translating these little fairy tales. And because of the person Amelia is, she like, sometimes ham-fistedly has to find parallels between them and her real life. But in this case, it's it's fun because in, in truth and in the version of the story, the fairy tale doesn't have an ending because no Stella or inscription with the full story had ever been found. And so the moral of the story as Amelia decides to write it is that the princess saves the prince from everything. And I think the fact that that ends up being like the resolution and what you take away from it is part of what makes this story so much fun. It, it's really fun. That what actually happened is what allows Amelia to write the fairy tale rather than having to like adhere to any specific trope. Yeah. And then what's, what's I'll let you talk about the final trope, Lane, because it's... Um, Megan, I really like it when the main characters make out in caves. And, you know, they, they do here, so... And it's always very... Like, inevitably, if the two main characters are in a cave together and the sexual tension is rippling, it's because there's some, like, imminent threat. Yeah. And I really liked, part of part of the way I love that this is executed here is there's a lot of moments that kind of parallel the first book without being, like, obvious recreations. 
Mm-hmm. But so, like, once again, Amelia and Emerson are trapped in a cave in imminent danger, and Emerson is so pissed off at her. And at this point, unbeknownst to Amelia, he sort of started getting his memory back. And he doesn't quite know what to do with himself because it's not 100%, but he kind of knows that this is someone important to him. And he loses his mind and jumps her. And it's so hot. It's, it's really hot, but it also is this this source of angst for Amelia because I don't think this is a spoiler because I have seen this used as like part of the marketing for this book. Yeah. Basically they kiss and then she writes reader. He had never kissed me like this before. Uh-huh. <laughs> like where I've never felt this way before. And she's like, Oh my God, does he actually love me? Or is he like a totally different person now? Like what's going on? Well, I also really love that Amelia very, Amelia's a very, introspective and honest character except when she is really ignorant of her own behavior I don't know how else to put it but she puts reader I'm gonna be honest with you I decided I didn't care if he ever remembered as long as he fell in love with me (laughs) I'll deal with how we explain Ramsey's later step one get him back in my bed step two deal with our lives like if he never remembers I'll live I just need our marriage back But so the sort of marriage in crisis, but not really because of the amnesia. Basically, it's it's great. I mean, this is a really, really enjoyable. And we really hate marriage in crisis. Yeah, it's true. And I think part of it is that the marriage isn't really in crisis, that I can enjoy it so much. Right. And it's little things like she, at the beginning of the book, gets out of a bathtub and he just gives her a towel. Yeah. And she's like, he used to not give me the towel. He used to just come get me. But it's not like they're not having sex. Just, okay, guys, <laughs> let me tell you that Amelia and Emerson are, like, the most highly sex couple ever. <laughs> ever. Like, I, I remember reading, so Lane recommended this series. I, re- I read the first one. I remember reading the second one, and she was like, oh, just wait, there will be, like, more romance in, like, later generations. And I was reading this book, and I'm like, they're having sex, like, at the end of every chapter. I was like. <laughs> yeah, pretty much in, in lieu of like fade to black, what Elizabeth Peters does is, and then I was distracted for the rest of the night. <laughs> like rather than being like, oh, we, everything that was supposed to happen happened at dinner. You've got the plot moving on to the next day. You need that like page and a half scene where they go back to the bedroom to discuss what happened, but then they get distracted undressing each other and whoops. Like, yeah. It's so good. And this is the part where these books definitely veer into real romance novel territory that like Elizabeth Peters does not stop writing when the plot stops moving forward. If she can give you insight to the relationship dynamics. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So good. Yeah. So, so those are, I mean, those are the romance tropes that we identified. But there's so many, like this book is about a couple re-falling in love with each other so it's all a giant romance trope plus like an egyptian spy movie trope yeah 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 the, the, it, it basically this book is i don't want to i don't want to define it just as a collection of tropes but it is kind of a collection of tropes and references to other things yes and i think elizabeth peters knows that oh definitely mm-hmm which is what makes it so much fun is she does vary her writing style based on the book and pulls in different literary references. And this one is very much a romance novel. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is. It's, 
it's it's really really enjoyable um i just need to sing elizabeth peter's praises for a second because this is a book written in 1991 and the first chapter of this book is amelia going on a rant about how wives are unpaid laborers yeah like there is no attempt to hide amelia or elizabeth peter's politics like throughout the text she just sort of lays it all out on the first page and is like if you don't like this attitude don't read my fucking book (laughs) yeah yeah no definitely and I mean this is this is a happily married woman who is still like I still wouldn't recommend marriage to most women so (laughs) you know yes she's like I have the exception not gonna say I hate it but you be careful if you ever receive a proposal of marriage yeah like might not be worth it yeah. Um, so I had a realization r- with this book. So Amelia, as we mentioned, brings Neffert back from the Lost Oasis and is trying to help her acclimate to English society. And she does that by taking her to a girl's school. Mm-hmm. And upon reflection, Amelia says, reader, I fucked up. <laughs> like Basically, the worst yeah. place to start acclimating a 13-year-old girl is with other 13-year-old girls. And reading it this time, I was really struck by the fact that I was 13 the first time I read this book. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, how much, how interested I was in Amelia's perception of young women. And how much I identified with Nefret as a fish out of water. It's like, I think I've talked about on the podcast, I moved a ton as a kid. So I was always starting over. I was always having to acclimate to new friends and, you know, be accepted by a new tribe of teenage girls. And... It's just interesting to read this now that I'm closer in age to Amelia than Nefret. Mm-hmm. And my niece just turned 14. And like talking to her mom about the decisions that are being made on her behalf and the person she's becoming. It was just a real like, this is not about the book at all and just about me. But it was it was really interesting to read this book at this point in my life. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I reread it in a couple of years and it was just really striking. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that I, I there are two different kinds of b- books that you can reread. I feel like there mm-hmm. are books like we just reread It Happened One Autumn, and we were both like, shouldn't have reread that. Mm-hmm. But then there are other books that you reread, and you're like, you get more out of it because of the state yeah. of your life or because of things that you see in the book. And I, I do think this is one of them. I think it's yeah. meant to be read more than once, honestly. Oh, this whole series is. There are Easter eggs littered through the entire text that you really benefit from watching the characters grow up and no matter how old you are there's some character in the series at some point in time going through something about the stage in your life I think it's I mean it's like old, right the beauty of intergenerational stories is you sort of grow up with the characters no matter when you start reading them yeah so for all that this is an amnesia plot and we mentioned the amnesia starts when Emerson gets bashed over the head and abducted. And he's missing for like a week. Mm-hmm. There's actually very little text spent on the days when he's missing. Well, it's all because Amelia's just frantic, right? And she's right, not but, right I, but yeah. I do think uh, like this is a sign of what a good author Elizabeth Peters is. Like this book is only about 250 pages. It's one of the shorter ones in the series. And I think a lot of authors would have been tempted to kind of fill word count. Mm-hmm. by discussing her thoughts and the actions being taken to find him and delving into sort of a day-to-day how they were working to get him back. 
And Peter's resists that temptation entirely is like Abdul is working with the Kyrenes to try to find, when the Luxorians to try to find where he's being held captive. Cyrus is writing to important people and I'm sitting tight trying to wait to get a letter. Yeah. That said, I think it is part of the, the romance text. We don't care about the time you spend apart. We care about the time that you spend together. Absolutely. Right. So it makes sense for this part to be cut out. Like we don't, we don't, we don't really care that much about what you were doing during the time you were apart. We want to know how you're going to deal with the relationship. So. Right. But that's where these are usually historical mysteries and you easily could have stuck some like part of the mystery in those days to try to fill up text. And Elizabeth Peters is like, ah, fuck it. (laughs) So definitely a good choice here. Yeah. Um, Abdullah, who has been Emerson's rise forever. And Amelia really bond in this book. It is very nice. Yeah, it, it sets up a lot of the next books as well. It does, but it also, I think, really struck me because we just did our Love in Egypt section where we were like, uh, I don't know, like the patronizing and kind of offensive take on Native people. Amelia still thinks the British are superior and like isn't a perfect character, but watching the relationship grow between her and Abdullah, especially in this emergency context, like is actually incredibly well done and like one of my favorite things in the whole series. It's it's very well done. It's very and well very done. Sweet. Yeah. And I feel like you really get to know Abdullah in it too, in a way that you don't necessarily is just like the wry foreman to Emerson's digs. Amelia at several points in this book makes reference to like how she's been coping so at one point she says I had my one night of crying on the floor of the bathroom at Shelford Castle where no one could hear me and now I'm done crying and she sort of tries to put on a stiff upper lip even to the readers yeah and I think this is really exemplified she has a moment where she's like you know Emerson's missing and she's laying in bed and she's like as she says it was a very restless night but I didn't toss and turn because I don't let myself show weakness in that way and I think it's just a very Amelia characteristic that even when no one else can see, like even when it doesn't matter if she was tossing and turning and restless and upset, she can't even admit to herself she's upset. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, I think that this is something you've pointed out, Lane. So Amelia, I find her an extremely unreliable narrator. Oh my but, God, yes. But more about her own feelings, reactions, and motivations than about the actual things that happened. Like, you know, this is a woman who edited out anything unflattering in these journals before she sent them for publication. Or right. the, but anything she perceived as unflattering. Right. And, but let's say she says, oh, I, I didn't even toss and turn. I, you know, she probably did. Out. She like, probably did all night long. And that's the but whole I think point. That, but that. the fact that it's so important for her to maintain this image right. of stoicism, I think is so defining. Exactly. Uh, one of the things I, I think is so funny about this book is Ramsey is trying to be the man of the house while <laughs> Emerson is away. Once again, he's 10. Yeah, so he's 10, but he's internalized this idea that he's got to be, so he's the head of the family now. Mm-hmm. He's got to protect Nefret. So then, the, which is sort of a romance trope as well. So. It's kind of fun. So, but he's trying very hard to be the stoic, wonderful protector, and he fails at every turn. And he's so tiny. Like, Ramses yes. is a very petite 10 year old boy. Yes. 
And so he keeps getting saved, but not by like the brawny footman assigned to protect him or his uncle Walter. No, he's constantly saved by Nefret, who he's desperately in love with and trying to protect. Oh, and trying to impress by his courageousness and, you know, his quick thinking. And he, again, he's the one who gets saved by her at every turn. And it's also interesting because he like writes out all these revelations about feminism that he's having to his mother. Yeah. <laughs> like, I should have known better than to underestimate women. I should have known better. Yeah. And he uh, ends every letter with how much money he's collected to buy a steamship t- ship ticket. And it's just yeah. like, you can feel Amelia's dread. And she's like, what am I going to do if my kid gets here while I'm dealing with his father's amnesia? Oh, right. Because of course, Amelia has not told anyone in England about this. And no. Mm-mm. No. Irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, she's like, I'm going to solve this. And then I will tell them what happened. Yes. Um, one of my other favorite things about, like, Amelia's lack of self-awareness, she's always telling other characters they're bad liars or bad actors or bad at faking it. But you can tell she's the absolute worst at it. Oh, yeah. So Abdullah comes to her and is like, know where Emerson is being kept ha- captive. And she's like, yes. Let's go get him. I'll get the cavalry. And Abdullah's like, no, we're going to go alone. Cyrus can't know. No one who would stop you from going can know, which he's just manipulating her and it's hilarious. But she's like, okay, I'll find a way to lie to Cyrus and get out. You can count on me. I won't be suspicious at all. And her language to Cyrus is so off the walls. It's like, I feel I must take laudanum because I am so freaked out about you going to the hotel on my behalf. Yeah. Know that I will be here safe when you return. <laughs> right? And you're like, Amelia, you got to chill, girl. <laughs> uh, but it works, so, you know. <laughs> I mean, does it? <laughs> <laughs> like, I will say that, that this rescue, which is paralleled by Nefret and, and Evelyn's rescues, of Ramses. So we have this whole Amelia rescue of Emerson is is one of my favorite images from this entire book. Yeah. I love it so much. It's so amazing. Hulk strength at one point. <laughs> right? Uh, it's I I like love that sequence. And it, even Evelyn like finding out she has a secret parasol that she uses to protect Ramses is so cute. It's very cute. Um, have you ever read She by Haggard? I have read She, yes. So um, for those of you who haven't, we've talked before, I think, about how the book before this, where they go rescue Nefret, the last camel died at noon, is a really obvious homage to Haggard. And there's a lot of parallels to She specifically, obviously not with the um, immortal being, but the secret civilization, the latter relative, all of that stuff. Well, they continue that parallel here in a way I thought was really interesting. So the son in She who finds out about his family's legacy, who goes to this lost oasis to find this immortal woman, is named Leo Vinci. Mm-hmm. And the villain in this one who's trying to expose Nefret and the lost civilization is named Leo Vinci. Right. And I just think it's a really good, like, subtle homage yeah. For Peter to stick Peter to stick in there rather than making it like a per not, rather than having to say, I was inspired by Haggard. Yeah. Yeah. Like you get the Leo Vinci reference or you don't. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, my my favorite of her classic novel references comes much later in the series, and mm-hmm. it's it's with Rudolph Rassendel. Um, yeah. Absolutely my favorite. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it just, it's just really well done because you're like, uh, there are so many parallels. So it's just very good. Yeah, she, she, you don't lose anything if you haven't read them. No. Which I think is the mark of a really good reference. Mm-hmm. Like, if you've never heard of Haggard or Prisoner of Zenda or anything before, you lose absolutely nothing from the text. You no. just gain a lot if you have read them. Yes, it's very, it's true. So if you enjoy Victorian literature, um, and especially P- Victorian pulp literature, rom- romances of the time, then you'll you'll very much enjoy these books. Yeah. Um, I also, just one other character defining thing for me, Emerson, um, at the end, when he's kind of revealing... Because clearly his amnesia clears up and he and Peabody are in love and it's all fine. Um, but when he's explaining what happened and how he solved the mystery and how he got his memory back, Amelia points out all the things that he just didn't deal with. Yeah. Like, the man lost 13 years. His best friend, Abdullah, is now an old man. His brother is not in Egypt. Like, the Department of Antiquities director has changed He's apparently got a financier in the form of Cyrus Vandergilt. Like, none of this makes any sense to him. And he just takes it all in stride. <laughs> yeah. Well, which also shows you that if Amelia had just told him at the beginning, oh, yeah, I'm your wife, he would have yes. just been like, okay. <laughs> I loved that. And the problem was, Amelia, one, was hurt because she overheard him telling someone else, I'm not married. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why would I ever get married? Yeah. And it really hurt her feelings. <laughs> and then the doctor... A fake doctor employed by somebody else in love with Amelia was like, "Mm, can't push his memory. Yeah. Like, don't do like if you if you value his life and his mental state, you will in no way reveal that you are married to him. I mean, it's like the worst advice ever, which everyone knows except Amelia, apparently. But she won't tell anyone else that loves them that he has amnesia. Right. I mean, it's it's like, it's, uh, I mean, it's just really funny. And it it really plays into the character that we've come to know and love from Amelia. Uh, And then also the whole Emerson, because you as a reader, you can start figuring stuff out too that Amelia's just not realizing. Yeah. So, I mean, as a reader, you know that Emerson is starting to figure some stuff out, you know? But Amelia, so the point where he hasn't figured out anything yet, he treats her very much like he did when they first met in reality. Mm-hmm. And then as he starts to figure it out, you can tell his tone changes to more teasing. Mm-hmm. But Amelia views it all as the same, so she doesn't pick up on it. Yeah. It's just yeah. so good. It's it's really good. It's really, really fun and it it's it's just a really fun construction too the way the book is constructed mm-hmm. uh it's really 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 enjoyable so so obviously I recommend this book uh yeah I do too like I said this is my favorite I think of the whole series just because it is it's over the top fun 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 like there's there's not a second that's not enjoyable I it's think. like it's relatively short too like she yeah. has the punch on every page there's not a wasted word no no, it's it's a very fun book, which if you have been listening to our podcast, you know we're all about just really fun stuff. And this one's, in my opinion, probably the most fun of the whole series. Well, I think you're right. This, 
I, my guess is it appeals to you because it's also the most traditionally romancy. Also possible, yes. Like this one is about two people re-falling in love without any of the unnecessary pages devoted to like developing conflict and backstory because you have it already. Yeah, it's that's true. That's true. So um, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy listening to us, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe.